0: to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins, and I'm here with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. And in the temporary absence of young Jasper, RBP co-founder, Martin Collier. Hi, Barney. <laughs> very very <laughs> muted compared to Jasper's sort of very White impersonation. Today, we are joined all the way from New York City by David Camp. Hi, David. Hello, Barney, Martin, and Mark as well. And Mark, yes. <laughs> Great to have you with us, David. For any listener who doesn't know, David has written lots of great pieces for Vanity Fair and is the author of Sunny Days and the wonderfully titled United States of Arugula. He's also the co-author with Stephen Daly of the Rock Snobs Dictionary, which is now 15 years old and still very funny and still on the money. So, David, we're going to talk a bit about rock snobbery today and also about Sly Stone and maybe Johnny Cash and The Doors, and the musicals of Annus Mirabilis that was 1971. What I'd like to start by asking is, it's a, it's a bit of a leading question, when did you first realise that you had become a rock snob?
1: Well, there was some self-recognition at that moment when Mojo magazine launched, and Mojo was kind of the first magazine that was sort of engineered to be entirely retrospective, not entirely, but largely retrospective. And kind of the beats it hit of talking about Nick Drake, let's say, or you know, classic Velvet's lineup or whatever. I started realizing that, that I had something in common with these Mojo magazine people, one of whom was you. <laughs> and I thought, oh, oh, this is a kind of fraternal order. And I'm sorry to say fraternal, <laughs> because because it was mostly male at that time. There are a few women, but and I realized it, it was it was kind of funny that it was partly self-loathing. To define this notion of rock snobbery. It was also <laughs> it was also based on some specific experiences, one of which involves you, Barney. Would you like me to recount it? Oh God. Oh God. Well we yes. can always we can always edit it out, David. <laughs> well, first, I have two stories that were formative in why I chose to write the Rock Snob's dictionary. The first involves Greel Marcus. Greel and I, you know, I, I grew up idolizing people like him and Ben Fong Torres, all these Bylines I saw in Rolling Stone as a child in the 1970s. Later on, when I was the editor of GQ, I actually got to work with real. This is the 90s. And so he, we had lunch one day in New York, and I rather innocently said something about Funhouse, the Stooges album. And it was one of those you know, things where a dog does a territorial piss mark where... <laughs> Greel very quickly put me in my place. Like I wasn't basically allowed to talk about the Stooges in Greel's presence because he unleashed this torrent of verbiage (laughs) just to bury my one sentence comment about the Stooges, just to say like, I'm Greel, Marcus. How dare you even endeavor to have an original thought about the Stooges in my presence? (laughs) So I like Greel and Greel knows about this story. So he's like, but he owns up to it to his credit. And then the, my Barney Hoskins story is, I think the very first time you and I met in person, as opposed to on the phone or via email, we had, I had lunch with you and Matt Snow in London while I was over there for a story. It was dinner, actually, that place in the Hoxton place where the David Bowie phone booth is. Oh,
0: yes. Hoxton. I don't remember being with you in Hoxton.
1: <laughs> Not Hoxton. It was um, but the one where the Ziggy phone booth is.
0: That street where the Ziggy phone booth was, in, yeah, in, yeah, in, yeah. just off Regent yeah. Street.
1: Right. It, precisely. And I had just casually mentioned in this discussion, we all have cultural blind spots, wherein there are things that are vastly popular or have vast followings, but for whatever reason, we've never seen it. For example, I've never seen the television show Breaking Bad, even though most of the world seems to love that show. I happened to mention to you and Matt, we were having a really wonderful time, by the way, a very, very merry <laughs> gathering of, of people. But at one point, I mentioned one of my cultural blind spots. I confessed that for some reason I had never heard a lick of the band television until the 1990s. Somehow they completely bypassed me, even though I was from New Jersey and spitting distance of New York where they played. And as soon as I made this confession, to you and Matt, it was this, as if I suddenly totally said, by the way, I've murdered 13 children and they're all <laughs> their bodies are, are in the freezer in my basement. Sort of the merriment went out of the dinner and suddenly you and Matt regarded me differently as if it was something, <laughs> something terribly never, criminal. Never
0: looked me. at you in the same way again. Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: <laughs> and, and, I, and I thought, that's very interesting. That's very interesting that, that suddenly I'm being judged for a moment of, of a really ill-considered honesty and saying I am not up to speed about, about Tom Verlaine and Richard Hill. And so your, your judginess kind of sparked me a bit, Barney.
0: I don't remember that at all. I I, 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 I dispute that I would have judged you for not having heard television. But, uh, uh, you know, I mean, physical expressions can be deceptive. And maybe Matt and I were just surprised, but we certainly wouldn't have been witheringly judgmental.
1: Well, witheringly
0: disappointed, perhaps. (laughs) Mm. I mean, you're younger than us anyway, so you're given some licence there, you know. I don't expect a 21-year-old to be completely au fait with the works of, you know, Burning Spear, for example. Uh, but,
2: Barney, <laughs> just, just accept it. You've just been busted
0: and just kind of <laughs> go with it. Well, I think <laughs> can we get... Can we get Matt on the podcast?
1: I'll no, just call him up.
0: <laughs> well, look, I mean, just the, the very fact that you have a Barney Hoskins story is very flattering. I remember having dinner with you and having a great time for sure. So, I mean, actually, you know, so what you're saying is that Rock Snobbery kind of was followed on from, from things like Mojo. And when did you start thinking, let's have some fun with this, let's, let's create a dictionary? Stephen Daly, obviously your co-editor on that, is a Rocksback Pages contributor. We've got, you know, great stuff by him from over the years. So what was the, what was the light bulb moment for what became a series of dictionaries?
1: Well, it was, it was actually a lunch with Stephen Daly, wherein we were kind of trading these kind of signposts of, of sort of approved, the approved canon of knowingness. Of, of being part of the club, and at the time it was it was sort of this 1990s era of when companies like Ryko Disc and Rhino were starting to be, do these lovingly produced, uh, high production values box sets of, of you know Kurt Butcher or, 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 or Flying Burrito Brothers or, or what have you, uh, or Sunshine Pop. It, you're sort of these these exquisitely curated things. Stephen and I were both admiring this and also laughing about it, and yes. falling and laughing, if you will, in Stephen's case. That's a really <laughs> deep cut, of orange juice cut. Stephen is the former drummer <laughs> of Orange Juice. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, Stephen presented to me at, at this lunch, um, it was actually one of these lovingly curated postcard reissues called "Ostrich Churchyard of the <laughs> early works early works of orange juice. So he was actually inside of all this as an artist, (laughs) an artiste. But we had (laughs) a lot of...
0: compromised. Fatally compromised. Yeah, I would say that disqualified him from (laughs) doing
1: this. (laughs) So Stephen and I were just having a good laugh about this. And then I sort of combined that with my... Real Marcus experience and my, my very bruising Barney Hoskins Matt Snow experience yes. and said to Stephen, what if we just pitched this to Vanity Fair as a humor bit? Just very simple concept in which we, we define all the received knowledge alphabetically as one would in a dictionary. And that was it. And then out of that Vanity Fair piece, we got a book
0: deal to do it as a book. I remember when I read it, I just, I mean, Mark used the word busted <laughs> a few minutes ago. And I, I just felt completely busted by it. <laughs> Laughed my head off, but it's like, this is me. This is this is just me. Mm. Everything in this book is me. And it made me think, well, do I really even like half these artists? Or you talk about fraternal order? Was I just initiated somewhere into this fraternal order whereby... <laughs> Kurt betcher is God and Alex Chilton is the Pope, and and I've never really questioned it. And actually, like Iron Maiden are really great, and I just right, right.
1: didn't realize. Or something. Uh, do do you really like the album Saint Giles Cripplegate? You know, no, it, no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, I, I
1: rest my case. But
0: I I think we could, (laughs) but I do, and I I think we could all agree on inspiration information by Shaggy Otis, because he gets a name. We're running this wonderful intro, which was published, obviously, in Vanity Fair. It's it's your intro. It's your definition of snobbery. I'm just going to read a bit. It's so funny. Just because a musician has enjoyed lasting success and critical acclaim doesn't mean he warrants inclusion here. And this is in italics. Only the persons and entities that are the psychic property of rock snobs
1: (laughs) make the cut. Mm,
0: I love that.
1: Right. I have another story. Um, uh, You reminded me of Lisa Robinson was another one. Lisa uh, worked for Vanity Fair for many years. We were preparing a music issue, proposing a photo portfolio. And I said, what if we did like a birds reunion where we got Roger McGuinn, Chris Loman, and David Crosby all in the same photo for the first time in years, and Lisa just like, <laughs> like, like carpet bombed me because I don't I don't have the experience and, and you know body work that Lisa has, and she said, well then we have to do Buffalo Springfield, get Richie Fure and Stephen Stills, it. and it was it was just this kind of like, how dare you, like like this this belongs to me, not you, kid, and, and so right. So, right. And I, I, and I stress that I love all these people. They've all been very kind to me, but they also really demarcate, like, you know, this is my property. It does not belong to you. You're an amateur. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lisa,
0: is. she's the sort of grand dame of, like, mm. rock retrospectives in Vanity mm. Fair, isn't she? She's one of those yes, indeed. You know, editors at large. She's the rock journalist who actually made it to the
3: Upper East Side, right? You know, yeah, she, yeah. she's... <laughs> I, I, I have the audio, I have the audiobook book of her autobiography. And, you know, sometimes you forget what you've got on your phone and suddenly in the car the other day, chapter eight suddenly leapt out of the speakers. This kind of, <laughs> and she's got a great voice. It's a kind of really, if you're casting a movie of a rock, woman, rock journalist in New York, it, that's the voice. It's fantastic. That
0: is fantastic. <laughs> Did you write about music? Me, I mean, before GQ, what, did you write about music before you kind of went into glossy magazine journalism? What was your trajectory? Nice to have a dog on board as well. That's not me. Sorry.
1: That's someone else's dog. <laughs> yes, my but dog is a dog, Shiba is Inu who's mute.
0: Yes, uh, I can hear him. Yeah, go on. Wait, fess up. Whose dog is it? I want to know. It's Martin's dog, right. I think. Oh, it's yeah. Martin's
1: dog. Okay.
3: Yes, <laughs> there are actually four of them at this point. In there, there are four. Anyway, not okay. all of us. So, uh, long story.
1: Well, well, well. To answer your question, yes, mu- music has always been my first passion in terms of any topic I would choose to write about, and it goes back to you know, I think the first two interviews I ever did for my college paper were with Pat DiNizio of the Smithereens. This is going to date me. And the Pogues came to town, to Providence, Rhode Island, where I was going to college. And I got Phil Chevron. That was, that was the person. I, I got the least Poggy Pogue. But it was just, <laughs> at, the, at the time, it was just what a thrill. And to this day, if I'm assigned to interview someone from film or literature, I don't get intimidated. But if I have to interview someone who's a musician, a songwriter, I still have that sort of tingly, intimidated feeling.
0: Not so funny.
1: Pat DiNizio.
0: who else did you write for? Sort of before GQ, what was what was the path?
1: Well, my no, my formative experience was at Spy Magazine, the, the spy, satirical Right, theory. you're a spy mm-hmm. graduate. I'm a spy graduate, so I came from that satirical background. So actually, that kind of explains it that I came from satire and music as my sort of go to modes, and out of that comes something like the Roxanne Dictionary. Oh, yeah. I think the other thing, Barney, that's important is that. When I was being, my formative years of of appreciating music were the 70s and 80s. And at that time, and the 60s, going back to the 60s, music always seemed to be moving inexorably forward, really fast. You know, just just from the 60s to the 70s, there seemed to be new genres and new developments right into the 80s when you had kind of post-punk and new romanticism and hip-hop. And then suddenly... Boom, like when kind of the classic rock radio format comes out and when the CD format comes out and suddenly record companies recognize that they can repackage all their back catalogs and remaster them and present them, forcing people to buy their record collections all over again in new formats, which they've been doing ever since. That kind of triggered a change too, where suddenly there were these deep dives and deep reckonings and reexaminations of the past and sort of these underappreciated artists, misunderstood artists, Nick Drake being, to me, the foremost example, wherein you were re-examining the past. And music seemed to lose a lot of that forward motion to me, and that sort of played into the rock snob area as well.
2: I think that's absolutely right. It's interesting that you talk about Mojo, but Q and Mojo, which launched, first the Q, then not long after Mojo, were a direct response to the CD because it was all about the fact that, Record companies are repackaging all this stuff and putting it back out again. In retrospect, incredibly badly. That's the one thing we've we've all learned. But yeah, I, th- I think I th- there is an argument that rock died somewhere around nineteen eighty seven.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's precisely that summer. I had an internship at a newspaper in New Jersey, and I was driving with a station on that was the- one of the first the first classic rock station I'd ever heard. And suddenly, I was hearing more than a feeling by Boston all the time. And I thought, this is this is a song. I never expected to hear again in my life. I really thought that's, I was still young and I thought that's how music worked, is that you listen to it for the two years, it's kind of au courant and then never again. And I was shocked around 1987, very well put, Mark. I was shocked that suddenly we were listening to old things again.
0: But what a great record more than a feeling is. I mean, it's astonishing. (laughs) Uh, I I think it's It's a sort of
1: Matterhorn of kind of AOR, really. As we say in America, Tom Scholl's goals.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I'm not au fait with much else of of Tom Scholz. Of Boston, but (laughs) but I did buy that single. I still think it's incredible. But in a way, you're right. I mean, it's kind of the CD revolution, Mojo, and so forth, and then on Cart and 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 other magazines like It sort of gave us license to just sort of start all over again and just and just relive it through.
3: Yeah, but also Lenny K's Nuggets compilation seemed to be a very important thing in right. that kind of suddenly discovering not fashionable music from an earlier age. So not what was in the pop charts, but what was. Underneath it somehow, or just before it.
1: Lenny, who like me is a skinny Jew from New Jersey, is really <laughs> was really precious. Like like Lenny and I are actually from basically the same town, but he was prescient because he was he was you know fifteen years ahead of everyone else in this regard. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, yes. and to his credit, he did it in a really generous way. He was curating obscure stuff because he loved it and wanted to share um, it. Yeah. And the kind of that sort of, Lenny K isn't quite a rock snob because he was too generous of spirit. <laughs> Later on, when we did the film snob dictionary, I, I wrote that Martin Scorsese is not a film snob because again, he wants to tell you like, isn't, isn't the Bicycle Thief a great movie? You should yeah. watch it because I loved it. It wasn't that sort of, you know, I like it and therefore you can't because I own it. And so <laughs> Lenny K, you're right, Martin, he was kind of way ahead of the curve and presenting this idea only he was nicer about it.
0: so once you were at vanity fair i assume you followed Graydon carter there and we're running a couple of your kind of epic vanity fair pieces thank you very much for allowing us to to add them to the rbp library the first is this is this wonderful long piece it's actually about this very unlikely or supposedly unlikely friendship between johnny cash and rick rubin and it's actually really moving it was very moving for me to reread this after all this time, was that something i mean was it the kind of things that you were pitching i mean did you did you say I think Rick is a really fascinating guy Johnny Cash has died let me let me tell this story precisely
1: Johnny Cash died in two thousand and three, and in two thousand and four, which is when that article came out, I just thought this is extraordinary that for ten years, the last ten years of Johnny Cash's life he got that thing that we all wish could happen but rarely happens whereas he had an artistically and creatively redemptive final act. Yeah. You know, we, we, we wish for that. We wish Rocky Erickson had it. We wish Brian Wilson had it. We wish Sid Barrett had it. And and it never quite really happens, but for Johnny Cash, it kind of really did happen. And I thought, and I also thought that it was Rick Rubin of all people, how unlikely. And even though a lot of articles have been written about, while well, Cash was still alive, the odd couple aspect of that. I just thought I went to Graydon Carver and I said, could I, you know, take a shot at this and and just look and see where it goes. And again, this is where I want to pay a compliment to Lisa Robinson, because Lisa Robinson was the one who reached out to Rick Rubin and vouched for me that I was a good guy. Because I guess uh, Rick was was reluctant to talk deeply about it. But anyway, so Lisa facilitated that. And I, I met with Rick and I noticed that he had religious iconography all around his house, just above the Sunset Strip. Buddha statues and a lot of religious literature. And sort of out of that, I just kind of just in the moment observed, like, Rick, I see that you're quite a student of of religions. Did you ever discuss this with Johnny? And he said, yeah, in fact. And then he went into this whole story of how he and Johnny developed this custom of taking holy communion together every day, whether they were physically together or apart, just doing it by phone. And that's one of those wonderful moments, journalistically, where you realize A story is going way beyond music, way beyond your preconceptions of what the article was going to be be about. It took on this whole wonderful, earnest, um, heartfelt spiritual component, which is why that article turned out so well and why why it's one of my best pieces that I've done in my life. Yeah.
2: Do you think that that has any well, obviously it must have a, have some bearing on the nature of those records that Johnny Cash made with Rick R- Rubin because there is this extraordinary quality to them and that, that it's possible that them taking Holy Communion together had had something to do with that, had something to do with the way in which they worked in the studio together, the way in which they, they respected and regarded one another, which allowed Johnny Cash to really come out with, I think, some of his best performances full stop.
1: Yeah, absolutely, because I think that Johnny Cash kind of could open himself to show that since they basically were on the same wavelength, yeah. they could do some really for Johnny Cash avant-garde things like that song, when the man comes around, which opens, yeah, with, yeah, you know, quoting some biblical verse and even doing a cover of Danny boy, where Rick Rubin found a church and a, and where Ben Montench played the church organ. So it's just, that's the only accompaniment to, to, Cash singing a song as cliché as Danny Boy, yet it comes yeah. off uh, kind of, kind of really moving because. So, you, so yes, yes, Mark, absolutely, <laughs>
2: fantastic. Oh, Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from glen to glen
0: and down the mountainside. I mean, you quote Roseanne Cash, uh, Johnny's daughter, in the piece, and she says – I can't find the quote in front of me now – but she says something like, you know, he wanted to try something new, but he didn't have the the keyhole, and Rick was, was the keyhole. I think it's something like that. Yeah. So it, it was a very serendipitous meeting of, of, of spirits, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, and I often think that's the case when something – artistically successful happens. It's that there's some element of chance or, or, or fairy dust that, that makes it that
2: good. Uh, Rick Rubin has had an extraordinary career himself. His his starting off point through to the present day. It's in a sense it's all American music. Yeah. But yeah. it's always very specifically his take on whatever it is i mean from the early days of of hip-hop right through to like doing zz top albums and things like that you know it's quite extraordinary he's got good Mm -hmm.
0: instincts hasn't he i mean we were Mm -hmm. talking about him i think we were talking about him two weeks ago when carol cooper was on and she reminded us that he produced donovan and i couldn't really work out how donovan fit into (laughs) the the rick rubin discography but then didn't he do he's got he's got Diverse tastes, for sure.
1: No, in, in fact, because he has this thing that I talked about. When you dream of someone having a really distinguished final act, he kind of has this feeling of, like, I'm a student of Americana and American music and American culture. And given that I've uh, been fortunate to ascend to this position of, of power, how can I use that to give people this redemptive third yeah. act or final act? And one thing that i just done in Oral History of the Real Building before the Johnny Cash piece.
0: And he said to me,
1: I always dream of Neil Diamond. is another person I'd like to kind of do the Johnny Cash with. And I said, well, it so happens I just interviewed Neil for the Brill Building Royal History. And he said, well, do you have his contact info? And so (laughs) that's that's all the credit I can take. I cannot take any further credit. But the one thing I did was I passed on to Rick Neil Diamond's contact info. And and so they did do a couple of albums together. Yes. But, but that's, that's, that's. I don't think I've had, I, Are they any good? Yeah. Are they any good? They're, those they're good. They're, they're, it's not quite on the level of, of what he did with cash, but no. It's it's good relative to whatever Neil Diamond had been doing the 10 years prior.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really spoke to me the cash piece, sorry, the Ruben cash piece, particularly because I, I interviewed Johnny when Unchained came out, and it was really one of the absolute highlights of my career as a writer and interviewer. I actually ended up like on a bus going out to this yeah. gig in the middle of nowhere outside Wichita and met June Carter and just saw how much these two people loved each other. I mean, it, it really makes me well up to remember it because it was so genuine. And I remember asking him, are you likely to perform, you know, to sing Rusty Cage by Soundgarden tonight. You know, we're in the middle, we're in Kansas and it's kind of, let's face it, it was a Trump crowd before Trump. Like, you really, (laughs) really, really. really. And he said, I probably, he said, you know, I probably won't be singing (laughs) Rusty Cage. Uh, I'll see, I'll see what the, I'll take the temperature, you know, and then, but he he was, he was slightly on edge, I remember, and and he did it. He was, he was doing like Ring of Fire and you name it. And then suddenly he was like, he kind of signaled to the man he wanted to do, this Soundgarden song. And <laughs> and he sang it with, with with real power. And, you know, I looked around and people were suitably bemused. You know, what's what right. what's the man in black doing? You know, <laughs> great memory. Great memory. I remember you talking to me lo- again long before this happened about I'm trying to get Sly Stone. You know, nobody's talked mm. to him for years. Nobody even knows if he's alive <laughs> or what the hell he's doing. And eventually, in August two thousand seven, Vanity Fair this this epic piece, Sly Stone's Higher Power came out. You you got him, and you talk about how you got him, and it's just surreal. I mean, it's really surreal. Did you did what did you really you did you think you were going to get him, or you, did you just thought it's never going to happen?
1: I just thought, why not try? Why not try? And it was another one like that's. I am still looking for the redemptive final act, and I don't know. If, I, I kind of doubt we'll ever get one at this point, but. The story of that, Barney, and you're right, I brought it up to you. I think, I think you even tried to help me at one point because that was 11 years in the making. 1996 was when I proposed that to Graven Carter. Like, I'd like to, oh, really? Uh, really? Like to disinter Sly Stone, if, if you're right lucky. <laughs> what year did your book, Waiting for the Sun, come out? I
0: think it would have been mid-90s.
1: Right, so I think I just read that, and you actually had a very good section about how L.A. was kind of the ruin of him. And I think you interviewed Bobby Womack about about it too. And so I did get
0: great quotes out of Womack about traveling around in that Winnebago. And that and we'll Winnebago, we'll talk about more in a minute.
1: And, 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 and Womack, you you have you got a great quote from Womack where you say, "Like you looked in his eyes and Sly there, but he ain't there." Yeah, and I, I just carry that with me because because <laughs> when I was a child, you know, this is this is early seventies. That was sort of my. I lived in this world of. of Racial equality and this idea that things were just getting better and better and more tolerant because I was in this liberal enclave. And <laughs> Sly and the Family Stone kind of like physically and musically, you know, represented that to me. Just look at them. They have two women in the band, you've got black people and white people. And so it was so profoundly sad to me that it went down the tubes in such a such a sorted way. And waiting for the sun, I think, was what was kind of the catalytic mechanism in emboldening me to say, like, hey, I want to pursue this and see if we can get out the other side of it. And Graydon Carter, to his credit, said yes. And, you know, it took years. Like, I remember one year I happened to be doing reporting in San Francisco. So somehow I drove up to Vallejo, California, where um, Freddie Stone and uh, Jerry Martini and Gregorico and uh, Rusty Allen, who was their second bassist after Larry Graham, were rehearsing to kind of like with the hopes that maybe they could do a Family Stone revival, but it just kind of petered out. Then years went by, and I don't even remember how I, I – I finally got to his sister, Vet Stone, and Vet had an interest in getting Sly back on the stage. She sort of – it was kind of to get him healthy. She wanted to get him performing again. And for whatever reason, Vet and I started this correspondence, which, again, probably took two years, 2005 to 2007. And I had to – I ended up flying out to Las Vegas where he was playing a live show. And basically it's because I showed up. I showed up. I didn't get to meet him in in Las Vegas. But I got to sit in this hotel room with Vet and Cynthia Robinson, which just blew me away because to me she's a – uh, a revered historical figure, the trumpet yeah. player for the family stone, who was wonderful, hilarious, really funny, really pla- But I think that I had to impress them to pass muster. And I guess just for showing up was enough, but also, you know, that I, I was inquisitive and, and not menacing or not looking for sordid details. The Long and short of it is, yes, finally, I, I, I went back to Vallejo in, in 2007 sometime and, and met with the man himself. And that's where that story takes off.
0: You describe that Vegas show very well. I mean, I just quickly quote from that. Sometime around midnight a man who looked like an extra from a black exploitation version of Buck Rogers sauntered onto the stage. He was wearing a black knit cap, wraparound white sunglasses, outrageous black platform boots with sneaker-style laces, spangly black trousers cut like newsboy knickers, a matching spangly black jacket and a red spangly shirt. A lot of spangling going on. He sat down at <laughs> the Korg synthesizer, parked center stage, and pumped his fist. And then you said he was only on stage for like half an hour. And a lot of that, he was just like wandering around. But you see, right. he did, he did say, he played, he performed, Thank You For Letting Me Be Myself Again and Family Affair. And, and I guess what, like two or three others. And, 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 and he stand, stayed and stand, yeah. and
1: stand, and stand, and yeah. stand. And it wasn't terrible. No, it, not only wasn't it not terrible, it was very good. Meaning um, like, whereas someone like Brian Wilson has, you know, when he performs now, he's lost the top half of his vocal range Sly, at least at that time, had not lost any of his range. He could hit all the he could do all the highs and the lows, which is you know, one of his signatures, is going all over the place. And his musicianship was good. It was just that he was kind of doing it in this sort of you know podunk casino with uh, you know kind of third-rate production values and and wardrobe left over from you know 30 years ago. And and um, <laughs> it, it just seemed like with the with the right focus and the right management, the, the musicianship and the vocal ability was all still there, so it was so tantalizing. And the one sad thing about that piece is I really thought that it would portend a return to action. And the the long and short of it, which is not in the piece because this happened after, it was revealed that his drug problems were still going on, he was not clean, and so even though he flashed brilliance, he couldn't hang on to it, and his, his old unreliability kicked in. That said, I'm still in touch with his sister, Vet, who has told me that he is actually in good health now, and I don't know that they'll ever attempt a true sense of him as a performing musician or as, as a recording musician, but the, the, the bottom line is at least uh, he's having he's having a, a good 70s right now.
0: <laughs> well, it's good to hear. I mean, it's a miracle yeah, he's yeah. still alive. I and mean, the amount of yeah. cocaine that guy's ingested would kill a kind of buffalo, really, wouldn't it? <laughs> Precisely.
2: Yeah. i read Chris Needs' George Clinton biography. Autobiography is ghosted by Chris. And in that Basically, George, and this is in the eighties, is the pair of them just spent the whole time freebasing? You know, George managed to get out and Sly, Well, he, hopefully he has, but he failed to do that. But it's it, it is fairly it's eye watering. Just the amount of drugs those those two took together is just frightening.
1: Yeah, indeed, exactly. indeed, exactly. And, and, and as I, I can't stress enough, his his voice was fantastic. I don't know how yes. his voice survived all that. But it was great. Well, the sort of coked out sound of Sly's
0: voice on "There's a Riot Going On" is is sort of an essential, you know, paradoxically an essential ingredient, isn't it, and texture in that in that record. If he hadn't been sort of doing so much, go probably wouldn't have sounded quite so extraordinary. But it is some of the most extraordinary. I think I mean, it's, it's it's in a way. Quite helpful because the main feature on the homepage is is about 1971. This Apple TV documentary has come out. Which I think it's based on David Hepworth's book, "Never a Dull Moment," and so we're just rounding up like four or five albums from that year. One of which is Sly and Family Stones. There's a riot going on. I mean, that album, in a way, is sort of it's a sort of sacred artifact of of rock snobbery, isn't it? I mean, if you're a, <laughs> you know, you can even not particularly like psychedelic funk or, or R&B, but you, you still have There's a Riot going on, which I shall just brandish my copy of it here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 it's, a, it's, it's a sort of a holy relic, isn't it, that record?
1: Partly it because is, it's
0: such an ext- the, the, the circumstance of its making are so extraordinary. I mean, did you always, is it your favourite Sly record or is Stand your favourite? Fresh is my favourite. Fresh is your favourite. I love, we, we worship Fresh too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, right. Just that opening track in time, which oh, is so tricky, yeah, yeah. and I, I still try to work out how to how to like play along with that because it's so tight and impossible. We did a hundred greatest theater.
0: funk records of all time very early in the story of Rock's Back Pages, David, and that came in at number one. That song or that album? that track in time oh. was deemed by the the RBP team, such as it was then, as the funkiest record <laughs> ever made. And it's which, also- which, I, I think, it is.
1: Anyway, it's also, it it's also shows his strengths as a lyricist there, there, yeah. there's a mickey in the tasting of disaster oh. in time you move faster in time gonna need a babysitter he's talking about himself and he and he did need a babysitter when I met him his sister was babysitting him he was precious <laughs> he But back to back to your themed 1971 podcast, I think one reason there's a riot going on is, is one of these, you know, holy relics, as you called it, beyond it just being musically excellent, is a historical demarcation. When, and, and I asked Sly about this, and he kind of shrugged it off with a laugh, but it kind of is seen as sort of the kind of bitter, solipsistic farewell to the communal hippie dream, you know, that mm-hmm. it's like, Feels so good inside myself. You know, to hell with community. To hell with you know holding hands. We're going a new direction. It's the '70s now.
0: And you said that Tim in your piece, and he's a bit kind of like maybe I didn't think of it like that. I don't think I was that disillusioned. And you ask him about his politics, and he's sort of he's very equivocal about everything, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. you didn't. You, you, I mean, I get the thing. You couldn't get a lot out of him. I mean, and it doesn't surprise me.
1: No, it was more about he was interested in talking about the lyrics to his new songs. And, I, I, you know, maybe I'll share with you guys. He sent me a fax this, because it's sort of still in the early days of email. No, it wasn't. But he, whatever. He sent yeah. me a fax. For him, it was. And, and yeah. a fax from Sly Stone is spelled P-H-A-X, by the way. But, so this, <laughs> this, this fax came to me. And it's sort of this, 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 this weird tone poem about uh, it was partially about his opinions and partially about my persistence and trying to reach him, and I'd, I'd actually be delighted to send it to you. And you can post it on Rock's Back pages because mm, I can't oh, even great. describe it. I can't we would describe love it. that. It just it it was <laughs> actually more like interesting than the quotes he gave me when we were sitting together. That is, that, we'd love to see that, mm-hmm.
0: David. Sure. I mean, but we're running this Roy Carr interview from '72, and Roy asked him about there's a riot going on, enemy, and Roy asked him about. Why, you know, we will, most people on Listers will know that, you know, Sly was just, just chronically no-showing. 26 out of 80 shows he didn't show up for. And one of them was the Great Western Express Festival at Bardney in England, wherever the fuck Bardney <laughs> is. And Roy kind of says, so how come you didn't show up? And he, Sly... in in a completely sort of mystifying way, says, well, I guess it was like this. If I didn't come to England whenever it was, it was because I was somewhere else at that time. (laughs) And that's his excuse. (laughs) (laughs) And then he says that I I personally feel that there's a riot going on was a very truthful album made and then released at a very truthful moment in time. (laughs) Gnomic. Oh my! Anyway, (laughs) fascinating. It's still a fascinating and quite spooky and weird record. Thanks for sharing your memories on 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 slide. I mean, do you know what he's doing today? Well, I mean, is he is he is he where is he living? Still up in Vallejo? I know. I think he's in L.A. now. Vet sent me a photo. Okay, then forget.
1: Then then then, then it's not going to happen, is it? Vet sent me a photo of him with a son and a grandson you know, kind of domesticated sly, that's uh, <laughs> like a year <laughs> ago. So okay. so I think I think he's being a grandpa and I hope he's I hope he's doing okay. But uh, yeah. I don't know a whole lot about it. Oh the one the one little thing I'll add is that Nick Hornby's novel Juliet Naked, the initial germ of that Nick Hornby said in an interview without ever telling me about it, was that article that I wrote that is now on Rocks back pages. Oh great. He said there was something about this loser's ardent pursuit of this musician he he venerated He didn't say loser, but that was what I took away from it. (laughs) That inspired me to create a loser fictional character um, (laughs) who'd be the, the Protagonist of my next novel. Oh. And we'll oh, leave that, there. I, I didn't yeah. know
0: that. That's fascinating. Yeah. This is a good time, really, to, to switch over to another artist. One of the other albums from that year was L.A. Woman by the Doors. And it's also very, very close to the anniversary of Jim Morrison's Demise. And this massive, great book has just been published. Uh, listeners can't see this, obviously, but I'm holding in my hands Harper360 is the publisher, and it is 600 plus pages of lyrics. And actual oh pages from notebooks. And so it's time to talk about the doors. And Mark is going to tell us a- about this week's audio interview.
2: Yeah, this is John Tobler in 1983. The three remaining doors were in London to attend a sort of doors symposium at the Institute of Contemporary Arts, of all things. Uh, and so he'd, he'd buttonholed them. It just so happens that it coincides with. The release of a new live album called Alive She Cried, which will play a clip at the end of the show talking about that and about the finding of these tapes and all kinds of obscure places. It's it's a good story. And he talks that some of it's from the famous Roundhouse show in 68 when they they played with the Jefferson Airplane, which was a key London event and all that. In the process, they talk about Jim Morrison and the doors and all kinds of other stuff and i'll play this clip this is them talking about the words
4: face it, the European mentality is a a little bit more higher evolved mentality than in America. We're still operating on some pretty basic levels over there. And uh, I think uh, especially here in England, I think you you understand the words. I think uh, (laughs) that's what Jim Morrison was all about. uh, The words. Listen to my words. That's what he always said. And I think you understand the words. Riders on the storm Riders on the storm into this house we're born into this world we're thrown
2: that's ray manzarek speaking there sort of being a bit sort of unctuous towards us brits <laughs> flattery will get right everywhere. <laughs> they also talk about the new danny sugarman but danny sugarman famously wrote what no one gets out of here alive which is the, the great sort of Jim Morrison biography and Dawes biography. This, is an, this new book is actually the Dawes' The Illustrated History, and it's essentially a photo book with articles. In fact, if he was to do that today, we would be the first people he would come to for the articles.
0: But <laughs> let's, let's have a listen to them talking yeah, about that. Because it's like they invented Rock's Back Pages isn't they, <laughs>
2: in clip? Yeah, pretty
0: much. <laughs>
4: The idea of, instead of someone writing some
1: more accolades about The Doors, have all the articles from our whole career, some of the negative ones, some of the straight press, some of the teenage press, I, I loved that idea, it just let them say it.
4: Mm. And we put it all together with uh, pictures from the time. So the, uh, the articles and the photographs uh, are in a corresponding time frame. Why is it that none of the photographs have captions? Because there are a number of people in this book who I'm sure would like to be recognized but will never be named. <laughs> Do you know, yeah. it, Robbie? Too That's... many words. That's why if we would to put a caption to every photograph, it would have been just too many words, along with the articles, than to, uh, to put all the, all the names and where the performances were, it would have been just too much to read. I think it's more important to read what the other writers have said about the Doors. Some very good writing, some very interesting writing of the time.
3: How great that two L.A. rock musicians sound like a couple of, you know, Harvard academics talking about whatever they're talking about. I mean, doing, doing a cut and paste book on the door. Absolutely. Um, they, they, they
2: talk about what they're doing now. Densmore's playing in various bands. Robbie Krieger had just being on stage, the Blue Oyster Cult of all people, and Ray Manzarek doing a, a kind of jazz funk version of Karlov's Carmina Burana. Oh, if anything, God. sounds more horrible <laughs> than that. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm really struggling to find it. So it's, it's a short one, it's about 15 minutes long, but they are kind of reasonably engaging folks, you know, so not too dreadful.
0: David, do you, do you have a take on The Doors? Do you have a sort of elevator pitch type thing on the doors?
1: <laughs> well, it, it's just that they were actually a pioneer of this, of this. Um, like they were born to be retrospective. Uh, but like bo- They were born to be repackaged because you know, they had this, this short, romanticized life. And I remember to go back to the 80s, I think, Mark, you were the one who said it was 87 when things started to come to a halt <laughs> as far as progress. It was around then, maybe a bit earlier, that Rolling Stone, had a cover story with, it was Jim Morrison on the cover of Rolling Stone and the headline was Jim Morrison. He's hot. He's sexy. He's dead. Yes. <laughs> and it was about. It, it was just about the notion. It was the beginning of this like repackaging and reissuing and, and saying, and, and sort of unearthing of the unreleased tracks. They put together this really formidable body of work, but, but the, but the fact that it was cut short kind of, kind of made it, made it more valuable and, I've never been a big Doors person. I like the album L.A. Woman, but I'm, I'm, I'm not the right person to kind of pontificate further because I'm not a fan <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to crap on them.
0: It's interesting to sort of to think about what the sort of status of the Doors is in 2021. I mean, what do the Doors mean? Is Jim Morrison just one of a kind of pantheon of hot, sexy and dead icons, you know, or do those records stand up? One of the things I always remember is that when I was doing interviews for Waiting for the Sun, what I had never fully grasped was that all those, I remember Eve Babbitt saying to me, all the Dewey Martin kind of people thought Jim Morrison was a joke and a complete Mm -hmm. fraud. So all those cool Troubadour Canyon type people thought the doors were complete phonies and they were never going to make it. But they were really just a different kinda of strand in the LA story, weren't they?
2: I think in terms of the LA story, there's there's another component is a lot of those people knew him when he was at Peak Assholden. You know, the, 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 his <laughs> reputation in Los Angeles was basically the man who pisses pants, you know, when drunk regularly. So so I, I suspect that sort of informs some of that. I mean, on Facebook, my, my music journalist friends, younger British music journalists who are writing mostly in the 80s and 90s, there is some debate around him. And a lot of people just outright despise the doors. They just will not tolerate them in yeah. any way shape or form and there are others who actually it, it's kind of a slightly guilty pleasure territory for lost of people i don't think their reputation stood up the way that so many of the doors contemporaries reputations have stood up but you know
0: personally i'm pretty fond of quite a lot of Doors stuff love the first two records and i think i'm with you on this david i think there's almost like i don't know whether it's a johnny cash style redemption for morrison but that but the woman is a really great like way to go out I think yeah. If you're going to go yeah. out, it's fun. I mean, I think L.A. Woman, the title track is phenomenal. And Riders on the Storm, I think, is just one of the greatest pieces of music ever made. One of the really interesting things in this gigantic book, the collected works of James Douglas Morrison, is something I wasn't aware of before, and I don't know whether they've ever been made available, but they're these journals he kept when he was on trial in Miami for exposing himself. So they're quite interesting, sort of just notes he was making about like the judge and the jurors and, and the people in the courtroom. Ooh. It's quite quite it's actually some of the more interesting and less pretentious stuff in this volume. But Hugh Nolan, whose International Times review of L.A. Woman from 26th of August 1971, basically says it's a fucking brilliant album. These, these were the actual words in 71. And he says, <laughs> I believe having lived with it through a for quite a considerable amount of brain damage, which is probably permanent by now. I don't know whether that was caused by LA Woman or what, but he says, the doors have shown Grand Funk Railroad, something about rock and roll on this album, transcend the defined limits of your chosen discipline. And yes, Cynthia, you too can do anything. I mean, this was a hippie rag, David. I need to just explain. <laughs> you you could write like that in, 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 in IT. Yeah,
2: I've got to point out that, yeah, the, Nick Jones, one of our contributors who was the house hippie at the Melody Maker in '67, he just in an email to me today described Hugh Nolan as a fellow psychonaut. Psychonaut?
0: I think we know what that means. You know? well, we had the, we had anyway. the lovely Caroline <laughs> Boucher on the podcast uh, two or three months ago, didn't we, Mark? And she was a fellow writer on Disc, and Hugh would have his smokeables sent to Caroline so that she could bring them into the that's office. Right. Because he figured that she wouldn't be stopped or or, <laughs> or busted by anybody. So basically, she was his <laughs> drug mule.
2: Yeah, it was a great story. It was fantastic.
0: Great story. Anyway, so that's 1971. And we're also featuring David Hepworth wrote this book, Never a dull Moment. So I think we just chuck in a piece he wrote about Electric Warrior, which is quite fun. Another great album. from uh, Have you watched 1971 yet? Haven't watched it yet. We have a new Apple Mac, actually, a new iMac, which I think gives us maybe a year free of Apple TV, so I may watch it.
2: Yeah, well I've s i have subscribed. I'm gonna unsubscribe as soon as I can, but I subscribe to watch it. I've watched is I've watched three episodes, I think there are more than that. And I found it rather boring. I mean the people who yeah. made it are fantastic. You know, the guys who did the Senna documentary and so on the Amy Winehouse one. Yes.
0: But Semicopadia. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. But I yeah, I, I found myself okay. having to kind of prop my eyelids open to watch well, it.
3: In in any of the pieces, you know, promoting it, the, the Hepworth book barely gets a mention. I think they bought it for the, t- the title and the idea and then just went... Concept. Yeah, because it doesn't... See, I mean, it certainly doesn't hew to any of his kind of way of, of writing the story.
0: They did come to us to ask for some audio, and I don't know if they ever used it. If they did, they owe us some money. After <laughs> if you hear any, if you hear any suspicious audio, just... <laughs> Mark, as you okay. wade through all 105 episodes, will you let let me know? Um, I will. <laughs> I, so that's that's what's free on the home page, and you know what isn't free. Mark will now tell us a little bit about, and David, please just jump in if you hear a name or an album title or something that makes you. You, you feel compelled to say something don't hold back don't be shy right
2: all right this is so from last week going in last week um i hate uh, it, joe I hate Co- it.
0: Co-
2: <laughs> you told me to jump in sorry
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah i hate it too i don't even know what it is
2: <laughs> joe cock and mad dogs and Englishmen. oh I quite uh, like re- that yeah by philip yeah. philip alwood by Philip Elwood at the San Francisco Examiner, 24th April 1970. He says, It's the damnedest collection of rocking freaks I've ever seen on stage and one of the most enjoyable shows I've ever attended. The pacing is perfect and the production work of Koch and Russell shows real class. Now, for Philip Elwood to say one of the most enjoyable shows he's ever attended, seeing, he's seeing people like the Mars Davis Classic Quintet in 1965 and many millions of other shows, that really says something. I love that. I love the album and the film less so because it's, it's quite awkward. But that album, I absolutely adore, and I, re- I was really glad to find that review of
0: great.
2: Mad Dogs. One of the
3: one of the great two drummer albums.
2: Yes. 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 Well, yes. he he talks about the number of people on the stage. There's like 40 people on the stage at various moments. I mean, it's absolutely. This why Joe came back
0: broke. Mainly Claudia Lanier, right? Yeah, well, 40 people quite. on stage, mainly Claudia Lanier. <laughs> Get honest. <laughs> yes,
2: absolutely. We're
0: just to live together.
2: 1971 Melody Maker, Roy Hollingworth, interviewing Van de Generator and Peter Hamill. And Peter Hamill says, I wanted to call the band H to He, or Who Am The Only One, meaning that everybody was God, <laughs> everybody was the universe. You just want to punch him in the face, really. I mean, it's just ghastly stuff.
0: So where did that name begin and end? It wasn't quite clear. Was it that well, whole a, sentence? That's, the or is the middle, the, the, the H or. to E. Okay. Or...
2: Who am the only one? Oh, right. Meaning <laughs> that everybody was God. Uh, everybody was universe.
0: <laughs> Were they in the, few, the Rock Snobs Dictionary, David? Yes, a Fiona Al- Apple
3: album title, isn't it?
0: You know, I don't. I don't know. I have it in front of me. I'll look. <laughs> no, they probably sort of fall outside the strict no, no, kind no. of psychic I... property. Of I, see, I see
1: Van Zandt, Comma Towns, but no, 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 no Van de Graaff.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's probably right. It's just, it's too
2: fucking out there, isn't it? Yes, slightly. Um, jumping forward to Enemy, 1985, uh, Stevo, who ran and owned the Some Bizarre, the misspelt Bizarre label, talking to Matt Snow, our colleague and friend Matt Snow, he says, if someone's paranoid, keep him paranoid. It's fun, mischief. I like the devilments in children, that look in their eye. He just talks kind of really high grade bollocks. He also kind of t- talks about how the- everyone on the label are friends, everyone loves one another. It turns out it's the exact opposite that virtually everyone he signed, he ripped off ruthlessly, and they all despise him now. It's really, it's really, it's, it's quite something.
0: Well, how, well, does anyone know what Steve-O does? Uh, no, sort he of of seems to have <laughs> sort of disappeared. <laughs> we spent sort no time looking into that. Does he have uh, an investment or something?
2: No, 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 people want to know where he is and they can't find him anywhere.
3: <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> he owes them money.
2: <laughs> he probably because yeah, he owes them money. Lastly, from last week, 1987, Blues and Soul, John Abbey interviewing the wonderful Sylvester, who I know that, Barney and I love. I can't speak to you. You, 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 other, you guys, but, gentlemen, you fine gentlemen, you fine gentlemen. <laughs> what, was, um,
3: what was the big hit? What was the big? Oh, you mighty, mighty, real. mighty real. You make me feel. Yeah, over and over, yeah, which
2: is yeah. a fantastic Your record. Your dog, the <laughs> dog is
0: agreeing. Yeah. Yes, 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 that
2: one. <laughs> Sylvester gets the dog's vote. Yeah. Um, so Sylvester says, "I must spend fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year on clothes and wigs, and I've still never got a thing to wear." Which is uh, what's sad about this is <laughs> eighty-seven. So it, it's and he talks quite a lot about doing shows for AIDS fundraisers because you know, living in San Francisco, eighty-seven, AIDS was just the Massive crippling thing, and he himself died what two years later of it. Great, yeah. great sadness. This week, what's going on? Nick Jones, who I mentioned earlier, sent kindly sent over some stuff from his, his dad interviewing Bob Dylan in 1965. And this is a phone interview in the lead up to his 65 UK tour. Bob Dylan's mostly monosyllabic in this thing, he's on a phone, it's yes, no. I don't know. But um, Max says, finally, are your American folk singers branded commercial if they record on anything other than a specific folk label? I don't really know. I don't know any of the people who do those things. I don't hang out with people who would do that. You know, I like everybody.
0: This <laughs> well, This, reminds me of when we, when we had Michael Watts come in and he shared this fantastic yeah, yeah. story about the first time Dylan ever came to London in, what, 62, when he, when he appeared in that play yeah, yeah. in King's Cross. Was, and of Michael the said there's this legendary story that Dylan was an avid Melody Maker reader and he went to the Melody Maker offices to meet Max That's Jones. That's right. And was thrown out. Because, because no one yeah, knew Max, he was, he was. Max
3: wasn't there. This skinny pest
0: yeah. from New York who was, who, who, who was trying <laughs> to find Max, and, and they, they, they told him to get lost. Hard to believe. Okay. Anyway, A sorry. couple of
2: years ago, my improv band played the same place where Dylan played his very first London show, which is a pub mm. called The King and the Queen, around it's the really course it. where he used to live, yeah. uh, Martin, yeah. in the same room. It's a rather marvellous room. Scott Walker to Longada, record mirror in 1968. I'm so busy redesigning my repertoire. No more Jacques Brel numbers. I've sort of passed them up now, outgrown them. Good on yeah. <laughs> Johnny Cash to Michael Leiden, New York Times, 1969. I gave them a stiff shot of realism, singing about the things they talk about, the outside, shooting, trials, families. It's a good interview. So it's, it's a very big... I mean, that's
0: about, presumably about false Prison, isn't
2: it? Yeah. Well, yeah so when he says exactly, them, he's,
0: talk, exactly. he's it's talking, talking about the yeah. inmates.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is talking about the inmates. Could have made that clearer, couldn't I? <laughs> Enemy in 1979. Ian Penman talking to all the rough trade people about rough trade. Now, this is before rough trade had, strictly speaking, become a label. They were starting... They've released a handful of singles by people, but they were more turning to a distribution network, which we discussed with with Jeff Travis when he's a guest on our podcast over a year ago, well over a year ago now. He, he says, we're not divorced from all the processes. Because we have a shop, we have people coming in all the time. We're not like a record company on the 14th floor. Mayo Thompson says, Mayo Thompson of Red Crayola, who's also part of the rough trade scene at that point, says, it's like that thing in the press, the Akron sound, the Bogner Regis sound. It gives a false impression that there are centres.
0: Which is kind of the Bogner. I love the idea of the Bogner Regis. It's never too late. <laughs> Presumably, Rough rock trade has to get an entry in the rock snobs dictionary.
1: David. Well, you know, we were, we could be more comprehensive and make it an encyclopedia. Than not <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: uh, you, mean, you mean the answer is no? I, you,
1: I yeah, just, uh, Well, also, it, it's um, it, it's been when the book came out, it was actually. Um, Slightly heartbreaking to that both John Savage and the late Ian McDonald hated it. They both thought the Rock snob Dictionary was terrible oh, to how ridiculous. And and I, I look up to both of those men and, and um just I'll confess to being bruised by that. <laughs> a
0: sense of humor failure. Yes. Sense of humor failure. <laughs> it's a bit a little too close to the mark. Which I can admit that I'm a rock snob. <laughs>
2: very lasting Guardian 1989 Adam Sweeting interviewing Keith Richards uh, who always gives fairly good interview Adam Sweeting reports that his PR person is basically bringing a succession of glasses of a a kind of amber fluid to the table for Keith throughout. And he does mention he slurs a few times throughout this interview. He says, I guess I'd do a little band leading now and again, but I always feel like I'm working for Charlie Watts, basically. <laughs> Which I, <it's> quite nice. <laughs> he says, I don't see why you can't have very mature rock and roll that can still relate to young people as well as your own generation. He keeps flogging that line. and I, I don't believe it for a second. He says, I'm not trying to recapture my youth anyway. I'm more interested in finding out what I can do with the rest of my life which is a fair enough point. This is like just before the Steel Wheels tour or something like that. But it's it's a good interview. It's, it's good. Barney, what have you got?
0: I'm just going to mention two things. I mean, without Jasper here, I've had to load quite a few more pieces than than, than I would normally. But one of them was a really nice conversation between Mick Hucknall of Simply, Simply Red and the great Bobby Blue Bland, my all-time favourite American singer, I would say, probably, and um, because Hucknell did this sort of tribute to Bobby. Yeah. Andrea Lyle, who's based in Memphis, basically meets them and I think the old Peabody Hotel and just sits down and kind of rolls tape of Mick and Bobby being very nice to each other. It's actually lovely. And um, we did talk about simply read on the podcast oh probably also about a year and a half ago anyway it's good and Bobby's reminiscing about you know Junior Parker and listening to yeah to Muddy Waters and Lowell Falson and he talks about Joe Scott and I mean those incredible records I I uh, are you a Bobby Bland fan David are you are you do you know the works of Robert Calvin Bland
1: I know the works, but but not. But it's kind of like a, the television situation all over again. I, I don't want to confess my ignorance, lest, <laughs> lest, lest you oh. judge me for my lack of depth in the. Body oh, shall we the just suddenly get very earnest
0: and sort of shame <laughs> you now? Uh, okay, yes, yes. Uh, Mark Martin, stop smiling. This is a I'll, cold I'll, moment.
1: I'll, uh, I'll yes. see myself I'll out. Get me <laughs> Yes. yes.
0: Uh, <laughs> Martin, I know. Well, I know you, you. guys are Bobby mm, Brown yeah, fans. Yes, um, fans. Did you ever hear the tribute to Bobby album? I, I mean, it,
2: it I, I heard some yeah. tracks. Yeah. Not not terrible. Not terrible. Really not terrible. His heart's in the right place Even in all sorts despise. of ways. I think. I mean, he, I've very, very mixed feelings. I mean, you know, as as a man, I mean, I I really despise simply red for a number of reasons, most of which they, they were utter shit. <laughs> he bankrolled the great reggae yeah, issue like, label, Blood and Fire, which we, I think that's where people... Learned how to. Re- well, it's a, it's a brilliant label. It was a brilliant label. It's, it's, it's gone now. They were the first people to crack the thing of remastering old vinyl mm. uh, or to old tape. Yeah, sure. Those CDs sound fantastic in a way that... Yeah. You know, like, Atlantic's really just to sound like shit, tinny shit. It, but, you know, show. with him, it's,
3: yeah. it's 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 like all those things, the rock snob in you, you know, he's got great taste. That's really annoying because you don't like his band. But, but you know, I mean, he, he's got, <laughs> you know, he did a rather redundant cover of of, of certain, I mean, he did a fantastic cover of Neil Young's On the Beach. I don't know if you've ever heard that it's live. Whoa, not heard of that huh? live. That was really good.
0: Really? Okay. He's not a bad no, singer. No. And Bobby Bland actually says, you know, you're a good singer. He tells you. Although them. the other yeah, night yeah. I
3: was watching, a, you know, one of those Dylan at the BBC things where it's people covering Bob's songs. And he did an incredibly redundant version of Positively Fourth Street. And it's a song where you realise that whether you're a good singer or not, that's not what that song's about. And, and it, it kind of falls totally flat if you're not uh, Bob Dylan or, or have some real anger to bring to that but you can't do it in a kind of solely sweet way.
0: Oh, no, it's not a Christ. song you would, you would naturally <laughs> think. Oh,
3: Mick what a dragon is, is to see you. I
1: wish your listeners could see Mark's face when he said, oh, Jesus Christ. Just the most dyslexic physical expression I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. We're so used to it, yes. David, that we don't even
0: really notice <laughs> anymore. I think we should, great... meme,
1: we should meme that face. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we should, sure, I agree. Oh, Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> we did meme, a, we memed Mark flicking a, a V sign. So I can't even remember at whom or what. But it doesn't matter. We just had that kind which of on, on, on rotation, as it were.
2: Well, at least it was the V sign used correctly, unlike the new Sex Pistols movie that's been done by Danny Boyle, which is sounds, looks atrocious. And there's a still from it where they're giving the, the middle finger the, thing, the finger, which they simply wouldn't have done in <laughs> no. 1976 or no. 77. It's just you like,
3: know. <laughs> I was, it's just like inside Loon Davies. They didn't yeah. wear their scarves like
2: that in 1962.
0: You know, all yeah. of these sorts of details. <laughs> I, I actually, the other day, a friend of my wife's was doing costume work on that pistol film. And I said, yeah. the middle finger thing, it's yeah. all wrong. No punks on the King's yeah. road would have done that. And she was, Oh, Shit! I better, I I better call the the director now. Anyway, I did just want to mention in this humble bland kind of meeting, there's a lovely thing where Bland says, "In London, they named me the Love Throat, and they'd shout, shout do the Love Throat,' and I didn't even know, I didn't know what the hell they were talking about." (laughs) That's got to be the
2: squall. The squall. Yeah, yeah, the The squall. But
0: apparently there was a there was a fanatical band of Bobby Blenders. You called it the Love Throat. And when I leave, it's time to make sure it's understood
3: that this time I'm gone for good.
0: The only other thing I'm just going to mention is actually a quote from a lyric. There's a review of an album by Jen Cloher. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. C-L-O-H-E-R, who is the partner of Courtney Barnett. She's an Australian... Singer songwriter, and a sort of like PJ Harvey ish. Anyway, there's a song in this review by Andrew Stafford. And it goes like this. Most critics are pussies who want to look cool. Those who can, they do. Those who can't review. What's hot today is forgotten tomorrow. All you've got is your joy and sorrow. Anyway, those who can, they do. Those who can't review. (laughs) Ouch. Ouch! It just leapt out at me. So I thought I'd just share that. But there we are. That's, That's kind of us done with what is new on RBP this week. And, you know, so I just say to... Anyone who's listening, jump on and read these fantastic pieces great. by David. And, you know, thanks for coming on board. We're so honored to have you on RBP and hope hope we can get some more stuff. Maybe that so I can cajole you into letting us have the Brill Building oral history. I'd, mm. I'd love to see that on RBP.
1: Uh, I don't know. <laughs> He's already being difficult. Now, <laughs> Even though Neil Sedaka is in it? Is, does Neil Sedaka Love Neil Sedaka. Okay. <laughs>
0: okay. Love Neil Sedaka. Well, can I just work. tell
1: you, one thing that didn't make it into that piece is that when we, when we um, I'm 6'1", I'm not that tall, but when, when we finished that interview, Neil Sedaka and me, we stood up, we were seated the whole time, and he, in his old Brooklyn Jewish mom accent, he said, you're she said, David, you're very tall. Are you 6'5"? <laughs> I still it. you're very tall.
3: <laughs> did you, did you talk um, in that piece to uh Paul Anker? No. Mm. Should I have? No, I don't know. Paul Anka is kind of interesting, I think. He he kind of straddled a lot of things and and was kind of I I kind of put him together with the Brill Building, but maybe he wasn't Really, a Brill writer. I
1: got I got some of the stragglers like uh, Walter Becker because you forget that Fagin and Becker were there at the tail end of the Brill yes. building yeah. yeah, and so Walter gave me some really good quotes, and that mm. was like the only time I ever interviewed him. So that was and, a joy.
3: And uh, you recently wrote some lyrics along with Steve Pacaro to, yes. to a music Airs tribute, or a, it's a kind of tribute ish song to Steely Dan, where you actually get Denny Diaz to play guitar. I'm glad you brought. We that need up. to know
1: more. Yes. Okay, here's the story of that, which is that the, the very beginning of lockdown last year, my son had to fly home from Dublin, where he was studying abroad. And he said, I don't want to get you sick. I don't want to be the COVID kid. And then that phrase, the COVID kid, it's, it's, you know, it sounds like Kid Charlemagne. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I said, I said, I, I said, it just gave you the idea that there ought to be a Steely Dan song called The COVID Kid. And long story short, I, wrote, I I basically wrote a set of lyrics that came all too easily. In fact, if I were Donald Fagan writing the song, what would I write? And I basically, Steve Porcaro is, I know him through my brother, basically, someone I, I knew vaguely. But he was, as he said, bored as shit in L.A., and like looking for something to do. So to my surprise he was happy to try to do a sort of home at last style yeah. arrangement of my lyrics. And on the lyrics, I actually wrote on my lyric sheet, Denny Diaz style guitar solo here. And then Steve <laughs> just nonchalantly, Steve nonchalantly emails back, Denny's a good friend. I'll get him to do it. Uh, <laughs> that's marvelous.
0: And, you that's it. and that's on in Steely. you're in Steely. Yeah, you're you're in, Steely, in Steely the closest yeah, thing to it. Then, <laughs>
1: And once we had a product of that caliber, I said, well, why don't we make it a fundraiser? So Music Cares was, was raising funds because every live performance had been canceled. And so they were raising yeah. money for out-of-work musicians. So it was a perfect way to use our, our time and our creativity and this kind of ridiculous song for a good cause. So that's, that's how that came together.
0: That's fabulous. That is, Excellent. That is wonderful. <laughs> we'll have to and get you can, a clip. Onto the podcast,
1: and you can find it on YouTube. Just Google exactly the COVID, the COVID kid. kid, and we and we credit it to the Fabriani brothers because that's a reference to Tristan Fabriani, which was uh, Fagin's pen name when he wrote the liner notes that's to right. *Can't Buy Yes, so the, we're, we're deep into the rock snob weeds. Now. That's so. <laughs> yeah we're, we'll we're never
0: going get out wormholes no we're, we're, exactly this podcast I'm afraid Jasper this podcast is now going to run for another four and a half hours <laughs> Uh, we will let you go now, David. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great, great pleasure. And as I said, welcome aboard Rocks Back Pages and good luck with all future endeavors and, and hope to see you when all this is over, as they say. Mark is going to essentially play us out with the last clip. Yes, this is this is about the the hunt for the tapes which made up alive. She cried. We'll be back in two weeks, God willing, with Vivian Goldman. Every podcast we do now seems to be on the east coast of the United States. <laughs> I don't know what it is. No, this, no, there are worse no. places to be sure yeah but easier places to record podcasts remotely with but it just seems to be like new york city months so although i think vivian may be in jamaica actually so i can already foresee some some kind of internet issues there but god willing we'll be back with vivian well lucky it'll be jasper looking after them rather than myself so. (laughs) so thanks everyone for joining us and thanks again david my pleasure brilliant thanks david see you all
4: These tapes had been
2: missing for a long time, and we knew they were somewhere because you can't just lose 500 pounds of tapes. So we, we figured, well, either somebody
3: stole them, and in that case, they would have tried to get a ransom by now, or they've been misplaced somewhere. So that had to be it. So we like we hired a detective and everything, and finally uh, Ben Edmonds, who's our manager now. Uh, he just went on a huge search, and he finally uh, found
4: him, well, with the help of Paul Rothschild.
1: In fact, wasn't there a little sum of money offered to some guy at Beacons?
4: There was a reward offered, yes. And the and
1: and, uh, guy found it. And he found it, <laughs> young chap. Uh,
3: within oh,
4: well, we, two we
3: hours. Of, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: And we had sort of given up, and uh, this guy uh, got The, the detective thing. couldn't even find it. Uh. It was a uh, a French detective. What was his name? Clouseau. Clouseau. Yes.
3: (laughs) That was John Densmore, Robbie Krieger and Ray Manzarek of The Doors in conversation with John Tobler in 1983, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest David Camp. Visit his website at davidcamp.com. The hosts are Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and the producer was Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.